You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting the political podcast this week. And with me are Lauren Horsch, Lynn Bonner, Will Doran, and Colin Campbell. Uh, this week, uh, Governor Roy Cooper uh, loses in court over firings of uh, several employees. Uh, a notable Democratic lawmaker switches parties, becomes a Republican in the, in the legislature. And former Governor McCrory weighs in on HB2 and Cooper's deal, uh, proposed deal to settle the lawsuit that sprang out of HB2. And we also talk about ghosts. So stay with us. Uh, But first up, Will Doran, you reported this week on um, Governor Cooper's, Governor Cooper being embroiled in several cases uh, in kind of an obscure court uh, over his uh, firings of employees. And this all sprang out of the sort of overarching battle between him and the legislative leaders about who has the power to hire and fire and how many employees should be exempt. There's sort of a larger battle here. But first off, um, what happened in these court cases? Yeah, you know, when, when I start talking about, you know, personnel cases at the Office of Administrative Hearings in front of administrative law judges, people's eyes kind of tend to glaze over. But it's actually a really interesting story, um, Basically, it all ties into the the broader power struggle between Cooper and the legislature. Uh, Listeners will remember in December, the legislature uh, slashed the number of uh, exempt jobs in state government, which are the ones that basically the governor can hire or fire at will, put his own political people into. Um, They're often, you know, patronage jobs or political jobs or high-level management jobs. the legislature got rid of a lot of those. They cut those down from 1,500 under McCrory to barely more than 400 for Cooper. Um, And Cooper came in and started replacing some people in the state HR office, in addition to some other offices. Um, And several of those people have sued, and uh, two of them have now won their cases. Uh, The state has appealed one of those two, and they still have time to decide whether or not they want to appeal the second one. Uh, but basically what this means is, uh, you know, if uh, if these people win again on appeal, uh, one, the state is going to have to pay thousands of dollars to these people that, uh, you know, Cooper will have illegally fired. And uh, two, it means that, you know, Cooper is going to be stuck with employees in the governor's office that were hired by Pat McCrory that he would like to get rid of but can't because of these uh, recent legal changes by the General Assembly. And so what's, what are the implications? These are just two employees, but what are the implications of this um, for the bigger case uh, involving the law that you mentioned where the legislature is trying to reduce the number of positions he has control over? Yeah, th- there's actually a separate lawsuit over that or maybe even two or three different lawsuits over that um, with Cooper calling that law unconstitutional, basically saying that the General Assembly did not have the right to protect over a 1,000 political appointees of McCrory's. Um, that's still going on. That's in front of the Supreme Court. So we'll kind of see there. Um, you know, Cooper is basically saying, hey, I'm the governor. I should be able to hire and fire who I want within the governor's office. Um, but uh, this law specifically exempted two different parts of the governor's office, which are the the HR office, which obviously is, you know, pretty important to a governor who's trying to, you know, put his people into different positions or, you know, enact 
hiring policies, things like that. And also, pretty notably, the budget office. Cooper is not allowed to put his own people into the budget office. The uh, the General Assembly gave everybody over there uh, protections from from being basically at will employees. And he's, is he trying to argue that the law that uh, forbid him from making those changes uh, really didn't forbid him from doing that? Or is he just saying that, that law is unconstitutional, so I shouldn't have to to obey it? How did he try to fight these these cases involving the firings? Is yeah, that- in, in these cases, um, I haven't, I've read two of the filings for the two people that have won. I haven't read the third one um, that's still going on, but I don't believe they use the word unconstitutional anywhere. It was basically just, hey, we think that the governor has this power even despite the actions of the General Assembly. And the judge disagreed. She said, no, you know, when us judges have to, you know, rule on cases, we are legally required to, you know, consider the intent of the General Assembly, and the General Assembly clearly intended to lessen the power of the governor. So, therefore, you have less power, and you can't do this. So, uh, yeah, you know, maybe that'll change as as this broader constitutional lawsuit uh, progresses. If, if Cooper wins on that, maybe, you know, these personnel cases will get overturned, Cooper will be able to start putting in his own people, you know, state won't be on the hook for tens of thousands of dollars to these employees, who knows? Or maybe, you know, they will end up winning, but we'll see. In the meantime, Cooper's barely even touched uh, most of the exempt positions that he has. Um, You know, as we noted, they got cut way, way, way down from 1,500 to 425. He's put in maybe a quarter of those, and the rest are all either vacant or still filled with uh, McCrory appointees. Wow. So is is he hampered from uh, filling those because of that uh, that law, or is it just taking a while to uh, get I, people into those jobs? I suppose some of them already have people in them that may just be acceptable to coop to the governor. Um, yeah, that that's probably true. Um, probably, you know, it might not even be that all those people are McCrory people. Maybe some of them are Purdue people that McCrory never touched. I'm not sure. Um, but pro- I, w- I would imagine he's probably waiting for this lawsuit to come down to see, you know, how many positions he really is going to have to fill uh, and in which departments. Okay. Interesting. And of course, this is all as there's other cases between the governor and the legislature that are still winding their way through the courts. He's he's fighting the um, election board changes and several others, including, uh, I think, some challenges to what was done in the budget. So um, we'll stay tuned on all that. Um, and in the legislature this week, we had a uh, notable party switch. Um, Lynn, uh, Representative William Brisson of Bladen County is now a, a Republican. Uh, is this a um, big shock to everybody who's been following legislative politics? It was a shock to no one. Um, Brisson is uh, or was a really conservative Democrat who'd been voting with Republicans for um, a long time, certainly since uh, Republicans um, uh, took over the legislature in this decade. Um, he became prominent um, really in 2011 with the uh, Republican legislature and their battles with Democratic Governor Bev Perdue. And he was part of a coalition of conservative Democrats who helped Republicans, who uh, Republicans at that time did not have a veto-proof majority. Um, he helped Republicans um, pass laws and um, 
uh, override vetoes uh, fairly reliably. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's and since then he's been voting with Republicans for a long time. Something I didn't realize until uh, the House Minority Leader said it yesterday was that um, Brisson wasn't caucusing with. House Democrats, which I guess isn't a huge surprise. You know, looking back, um, there've always or there were always uh, you know a range of um, ideological views within the Democratic Party, but they were it was all less pronounced when Democrats were in charge um, because obviously House speakers weren't going to um, push bills that didn't have majority Democratic votes. But now that um, Republicans are in charge, it's more obvious who those conservative Democrats are. I was looking back, though, at um, the core group of uh, conservative Democrats from 2011 who helped um, uh, Republicans beat vetoes. And Brisson was the only one of that core group who was left. I mean, Jim Crawford's gone. Um, Bill Owens gone, um, Dewey Hill gone. So he was really kind of the last of that of that group that was still in the legislature, and now you know he's no longer a Democrat. Has has the party as a whole uh, become more liberal, or are we seeing the sort of Jesse Kratz and people who were Democrats a long time ago, uh, whose views have shifted more to the Republicans, kind of? fade away, or what accounts for this, uh, do you think, uh, for this, this uh, people basically sorting themselves more? Well, district lines have changed. Um, there are, and and a lot of the, um, you know, Jesse Kratz are now saying, yes, I'm, I'm really a Republican. So I think it's both of those things. Um, it was interesting to see, I was looking back at some uh, performance data, and um and some of the um, party registration breakdowns. And Brisson still has a majority of Democratic registrants in his district, but it's uh, really become more and more of a Republican-performing district. Um, Donald Trump won overwhelmingly um, this last election. Um, And in 2008, Purdue actually won um, that district fairly handily, um, or his old district fairly handily, but um, Obama lost it. So it's, um, yeah, that district is becoming more and more Republican. And I think he probably realizes that, that if he wants to get reelected, um, if he runs as a Democrat, the odds that someone with a Republican label comes along and manages to beat them one party label alone is is probably pretty strong, but as a Republican, I think he's probably got a good shot at reelection. This uh, switching party doesn't necessarily to the majority doesn't necessarily give him more power, does it? Because he already was allowed some. Yeah, power he already had a the... committee chair position. Um, he might have more. I mean, there are very few Democrats that have committee chair roles, and they're certainly not the the big powerful slots. But I think in terms of seniority in the Republican caucus, uh, he may be eligible if he wants to um, move up and have a little bit more influence on some of the uh, committee proceedings and maybe sponsor some more influential bills. He's kind of not been a a major player even as someone who's a swing vote. Uh, 
Related to this, uh, Senator Tillis was saying this week uh, that back when he was in the House, the State House, he allowed uh, more bipartisanship, and uh, that's how the U.S. Senate should operate. Um, do, have the Democrats had much of a, a role in the uh, in the legislature, or have they been sort of relegated to the to the back burner? And I don't know, is it any different now than it was? under Tillis? Um, you know, Lynn probably has a better sense for the, the Tillis era than I do, uh, but certainly now um, I think the Democrats have a fairly minimal role. Occasionally they can slow down the flow of legislation if the Speaker wants to kind of throw them a bone. If they want more time to look at a particular issue, they might delay a vote a day or so. But that tends to be the only influence the Democrats have other than having a few sort of minor policy points they're seeking in a bill if the bill sponsor is amenable to, to making some minor changes. But in terms of uh, really working together on a regular basis, um, it really doesn't happen much at all. All right. Uh, well, Colin, you wrote about uh, um, Pat McCrory resurfacing this week. And I guess he's uh, not resurfacing because he's on this radio show now all the time. Um, but he spoke about uh, HB2 and about uh, Cooper's decision to try to settle with the plaintiffs in the case challenging the replacement law to HB2. Um, so what did, what did uh, former Governor McCrory have to say? Yeah, so he's doing this. Um, a lot of it hasn't drawn a lot of attention, but he's, he's calling in for about five, ten minutes every single morning of the week to uh, a Charlotte uh, talk radio station to sort of give his take on the day's events. Um, and so on this uh, HB2 development, uh, not surprisingly, he's uh, supporting the legislative leaders who I think on Monday – uh, filed their intention that uh, they are going to ask the judge in this case to uh, both throw out um, Governor Cooper's settlement arrangement that he has with some of the uh, ACLU and uh, LGBT groups uh, that were involved in this lawsuit challenging the replacement law to HB2. Uh, the legislative leaders want that thrown out. They'd also like the entire lawsuit thrown out. Uh, McCrory sort of agrees with that. He was uh, criticizing Cooper for campaigning on uh, getting away from divisive social issues and then leading by bringing up divisive social issues like bathrooms again, uh, when largely that issue had sort of dis disappeared from the headlines. Uh, and then McCrory made an interesting statement about the uh, HB2 uh, repeal deal uh, that he believes it wasn't really a repeal at all, uh, that the same restrictions in, in his description that were in place last October are still in place this October, and it's just a matter of uh, appearances uh, done to deal with some of these economic boycotts, which is sort of interesting. And I noticed a lot of the people who were opposed to the repeal deal or the replacement deal uh, back in March came out of the woodwork and said, well, hey, McCrory's right on this issue. Yeah, we pretty much still have HB2, or at least a lot of it. I mean, looking at like the um, ban on uh, local governments having non-discrimination ordinances, they can't pass those till 2020. So kind of are similar places in HB2. Yeah, Will, didn't you take a look at this when the replacement law passed about how to what extent it was really a different Yeah, back in April, uh, I wrote something for PolitiFact on this. Uh, it was part of our Coupo meter that we've been doing to track uh, Cooper's uh, promises that he made on the campaign trail, and one of those promises was to repeal HB2. Um, and on that one, we gave him a compromise. Uh, we didn't think that he had kept his promise entirely to repeal HB2 because, you know, McCrory is right. Uh, HB2 is not fully repealed. Uh, but the, you know, the, the bill that they passed in, I think it was late March, um, did, you know, did chip away at some parts of it. Um, and, you know, kind of, uh, basically, we got a less strict version of HB2. So, yeah, I, I think that's uh, pretty on point. Uh, I, I don't know exactly, you know, 
why it's just coming up now when, you know, this is something that happened yeah. March or April. <laughs> well, the, he had, uh, writing that story, I actually listened to two separate interviews. One, he was reacting to the Cooper thing. Uh, the statement about never fully repealed, I think, came in an interview prior to Cooper's announcement. Was about it was a, a question of why HB two wasn't a bigger issue in the Charlotte marriage race. Um, hmm. And McCrory's take on that was that neither candidate really wants to talk about HB two very much anymore. Um, it it really has just kind of disappeared from the headlines yeah, until it, we got this settlement news the other yeah, day. Yeah, and it makes you wonder sort of the political calculus from Cooper's end on this. Um, if he's trying to avoid a long drawn out lawsuit over whether the law, the compromise he supported is discriminatory or not, uh, whether he's sort of calling the Republicans bluff on uh, trying to go further in the direction of repealing HB2 with this uh, settlement agreement, knowing that uh, perhaps Republicans uh, won't want to go th- take the extreme approach to uh, dealing with it by coming back and just repassing HB2, which they absolutely have the power to do, but um, whether they want to fight that battle again, I suspect they probably don't. Yeah, it seems like both sides see the potential for a, a big political loss if, you know, you have a long, drawn-out lawsuit over it. So Yeah, so I mean, the hope is just to, to get it to go away and um, nobody be talking about it come 2018. Well, you, uh, Colin, you talked to McCrory this week, uh, and uh, yeah, I had a for very, a very different, different set of story. questions for him. Uh. <laughs> so, so uh, you wrote a uh, a story about a haunted bed. Um, so, what could that possibly have to do with yeah, state government? Yeah, so this was uh, something that I, I'd seen on the uh, executive mansion's uh, Facebook page a few months back that they had uh, restored the bed of uh, the 1890s governor Daniel Fowl to the governor's mansion, um, and uh, of course that. Uh, stems from a, a popular ghost story that uh, became popular when uh, Bob Scott was the governor in the, the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, Scott apparently was the first governor to move this bed out of the governor's mansion. He wanted a, a more comfortable bed uh, when he was governor, so he had this put up in the attic, and uh, shortly after he uh, put a new bed in his bedroom, uh, he starts hearing this knocking sound in the wall behind him, and he realizes there's no pipes back there. There's really no explanation for what it could be. So uh, Scott thought it was the ghost of uh, Daniel Fowle wanting his bed to be uh, replaced back into in its old spot in the governor's mansion. And apparently there was this sort of uh, creepy sidebar to this where the daughter of Governor uh, Fowle, who was, I guess, very old and lived nearby at the time, would come by every time there was a new governor and ask if her father's portrait was still hanging in the uh, mansion and if his bed was still in place. Um, So uh, the bed is now back in uh, with the Cooper administration. Um, I asked uh, First Lady Kristen Cooper, who gave me a, a tour of the upstairs part of the mansion where the, the bed is being uh, kept. Uh, if she's heard anything, she had not. Uh, neither had uh, the governor or the, the governor's daughters. Uh, but they apparently had a pet sitter uh, a few months back. They had a dog that was in its uh, final days and I guess had had a pet sitter come stay at the mansion and keep an eye on the dog. Uh, so the pet sitter was there by himself uh, a few nights and would hear uh, sort of a strange sound and, and what sounded like a voice saying either hello or Helen. And uh, they did some research and uh, Fowl's daughter's name was Helen and Helen would have been sort of his caretaker at the uh, at the governor's mansion. Um, so that's back in and then I talked to uh, just sort of see what the uh, uh, last couple terms worth of uh, the Fowl bed uh, or Governor Fowl ghost stories were. I talked to both uh, Governor Bev Perdue and uh, former Governor Pat McCrory um, Purdue said she, you know, doesn't believe in ghosts, but the staff had some stories to tell about uh, possible hauntings that they had seen. 
Um, and Purdue believed she'd been using the bed. Uh, McCrory apparently had what he thought was the bed removed, not because of the haunted factor, but because his wife uh, wanted a larger uh, king-size bed for visitors to the mansion during, during their term. Um, but uh, the governor, Governor McCrory, apparently had a lot of fun with the legend of, of Governor Fowl, even though he didn't necessarily see the ghost. He says he would say good night to the uh, to Fowl every night. Uh, that he thought he was a good ghost. Uh, that he, he meant well. Um, and then uh, McCrory used to host this big sort of Halloween party where uh, kids would dress up in their costumes and they'd come to the uh, gardens of the the governor's mansion and trick or treat. And McCrory was always there. And so his he had this running gag where he would. Uh, point to a window in the governor's mansion and say, if you look up there, you can see the spirit of Governor Fowl. And then he would turn the people around and say, and if you look over there in that uh, coffin, you'll see his body. And at that moment, someone would pop out of the coffin. And, and McCrory says, well, I've never heard anyone scream so loud as when they did that. And we, we found a, a series of photos from his uh, Halloween parties of, of the moment where he was uh, scaring people with the coffin and the person uh, portraying the, the dead body of Governor Fowl. And people... State troopers would play pranks on his staff. Yeah, right? so they would. McCrory told me that they they would like roll grapefruits down the stairs at night to freak out the uh, staff. Um, so it's interesting because I guess the, some of the same state troopers have uh, sort of done mansion security for uh, a number of years under a number of different governors. So that they almost, I think, perpetuate this legend on some level and uh, tell the ghost stories of what they claim to have seen and scare new staffers and you know, new uh, first families as they come into the governor's mansion. All right. Well, one more thing before we go to headliner of the week. Um, Lauren, you had an interesting story in today's Insider um, dealing with sports injuries. We had a, a, a notable... Um, a football injury this uh, this month, I believe, uh, out of Orange County. Um, but at this committee you were at, they um, they gave some context about how common this is. So, uh, are are kids in in high schools getting uh, hurt a lot uh, in sports injuries? Well, I mean, injuries happen all the time, so I would say that kids are getting hurt a lot. But what the Child Fatality Task Force was really looking at were um, catastrophic injuries. So those are classified as head injuries, spinal cord injuries, cardiac arrest. And, uh, you know, they found that between 2000 and 2016, uh, 30 athletes died from those traumatic injuries. And the biggest cause of those deaths were, um, I do believe, where'd it go? Oh, sudden cardiac arrest. So those are really causing a lot of injuries as well as head injuries. Um, so it's just it's putting a lot of information that we didn't know about because again we did have that incident in Orange County. Um, it was a junior varsity player who had a head injury and he's still in a medically induced coma. Um, he's still critical, so it's a you know it's a problem we're still dealing with all the time. And they're trying to find better ways to address this. And you know North Carolina does have a really good you know educational route to taking care of um, concussions specifically. They had the 2011. Gefeller Waller Concussion Awareness Act, um, and that means that that law basically says, you know, if a student gets a concussion, he or she can't compete in a sport until they've been medically cleared, and if they get a concussion, they have to be taken out right away, and then there are educational aspects to it for not only the student-athletes, but also the parents and um, coaches, so I think they're, they're trying to do more with it as well, because there was a bill introduced this year, Senate Bill 302, which would have done similar things for any municipal or county-level sports, so any parks and recreation that has, you know, a sports league, a soccer league, that sort of thing, that would have extended a similar 
program to those sports, but that has yet to be heard on the floor. So there's still work to be done, and they're working on it. So. Okay. All right. Uh, well, unless anybody has anything else, let's take a break and come back with Headliner of the Week. Please stay with us. Hi, I found a toy dinosaur over on the playground by Smith Street. Uh, it had this phone number on it, and, well, I just wanted to make sure the dinosaur made it back to its little owner. When I found the little sippy cup, I just had to give you a call. It's for a kid, you know? I know my son gets super attached to the smallest things, even a fire truck, and I'd be happy to drop it off. We'd do anything for kids, yet one in six children in the U.S. struggle with hunger. Help end childhood hunger near you. Learn how at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. And we're back with Domecast, and now it's time for Headliner of the Week, where we pick someone who represents uh, the most important figure in this week's news. Lauren Horsch, who's your Headliner of the Week? I'm going to go with uh, U.S. Senator Tom Tillis, who is, of course, the former Speaker of the North Carolina House. And there are multiple reasons why I'm picking Tom Tillis this week. Um, Number one would have to be he was um, a guest on a Politico podcast this week called Off Message. Uh, where we learned a lot about his thoughts on how the U.S. Senate can run better, better, including, you know, redoing the rules like he and other Republicans did here in North Carolina when they took over uh, the General Assembly. But we also learned some fun facts about Tom Tillis on that podcast, including how he got the H in Tom. Um, We can thank Jeopardy for that. He was watching Jeopardy when he was in his 20s, and some guy who was on a winning streak was named Tom with an H, so Senator Tillis did that. And and maybe I I was the only one not to know this, but all of his brothers are and, also named Tom? And they all have middle Thomas? names that start with an R? I didn't know that either. That's How did they tell them apart? Wasn't it that George Foreman has, like, all of his children are George. George? Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, you know, Senator Tillis explained it as, you know, I think his dad is Tom, and then he's also Tom, and then everyone else, including a couple of his cousins who are also named Thomas, go by their middle names, which, again, all start with the letter R. That um, makes more sense. So that was, that was okay. interesting. And then we also learned that he has an interest in the gathering called Burning Man. Now, I'm not that hip. I don't know much about Burning Man, but apparently uh, Senator Tillis thinks this would be a great people-watching opportunity, and his son has gone to Burning Man in the past, so he's very interested in this. Um, So that was great. I thought that was interesting. But there was also a photo tweeted out and Snapchatted. I did check Senator Tillis' Snapchat, because, yes, he is on Snapchat, um, of him getting popcorn right before going up to the GOP luncheon with... um, President Trump. And that kind of created an internet stir because it's like, oh, he's grabbing popcorn to go watch, you know, the drama happen in the lunch. Um, And that was very funny. And I, of course, you know, being in the interim, I was a little bit bored yesterday. And I emailed his office to ask the question, um, what is the better popcorn, the North Carolina House or the U.S. Senate? Because anyone who's in the General Assembly will know the House Sergeant at Arms do make popcorn on a regular basis, so so I just had to ask. And um, his spokesperson said that uh, Tillis will always pick North Carolina house popcorn because it means he's eating it in North Carolina, which easily supersedes all other potential considerations like butter and salt seasoning. Wow. Spoken like a true politician. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Some interesting factoids about Tom Tillis. I had no idea. Um, Okay, so Tom Tillis is in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, Lynn Bonner, who's your headliner? I'm going to pick Supreme Court Chief Justice Mark Martin, who this week came out against a GOP 
GOP proposal to have judicial elections every two years. Uh, this is one of the ideas uh, Republicans are floating for changing the judiciary. Um, as it is now, um, the Supreme Court justices serve eight-year terms, and appeals court, I believe, are six years. Um, yeah, I think they're six. Um, and uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. Oh yeah, there's uh, appeals are both are also eight years, and district court judges are four years. Um, so this would be a significant change in the um, campaigning and election cycle for um, for judges and justices. And Martin said this would um, uh, have judges concentrating more on elections and fundraising than on um, on their jobs being judges. So um, I guess a lot of people are waiting for the uh, head of the judiciary to speak out on this, and and he has. Uh, so I'm going to select uh, Mark Martin for my headliner. And Martin would like to get rid of elections for judges altogether, right? Yeah, he has said he um, uh, per, would prefer um, merit selection, I believe. So, yeah. All right. Uh, Chief Justice Mark Martin in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, Will Doran, who's your headliner? I'm going to go with uh, David Geis, who is the head of the state prison system until the end of this month. He just announced that he's going to be stepping down. Uh, that comes on the heels of uh, that really violent uh, attempted escape out in Pasquotank uh, County that led to two corrections officers getting killed, more like, around a dozen more officers and inmates injured in that. Um, I, I believe it was the, the deadliest escape attempt in state history, and those weren't even the only corrections officers killed on the job this year. There's also a woman named Megan Callahan, uh, who was killed in April at a different prison and a different assault by an inmate. Uh, there have been a lot of concerns. Uh, I've been writing about them. Some of our colleagues out in Charlotte have been writing about them. Um, but basically lawmakers are upset. The state employees union is upset. Uh, you know, we've been hearing from a lot of, uh, you know, officers on the ground in prisons who are, you know, kind of upset with, uh, with leadership. And uh, so he is, uh, he is falling on the sword and stepping down. He, uh, he was originally appointed to uh, the community corrections top spot by Beth Perdue, uh, and then McCrory appointed him to lead the prison system. Um, and he's a former lawmaker, too, uh, from out in uh, Transylvania County. Um, and so, uh, but I should also note, uh, you know, not just, you know, necessarily bad things on his term. Uh, last year, he also uh, oversaw basically the ending of uh, putting uh, minors in solitary confinement. Uh, North Carolina used to do that, um, but about actually about 12 months ago, he he stopped that practice. So we no longer hold 16 and 17 year olds in solitary confinement. So uh, yeah, David Geis. That's a brief bio of him. I, yeah, and I I may have this wrong, but I seem to remember he was a parole officer at one point. He, he was, was a career guy. He came yeah, up he through was the a ranks. Probation officer, parole officer, um, and yeah, like I said, was you know appointed to basically oversee parole stuff uh, by Purdue, um, and then got the bump up to overseeing all of the whole prison system by McCrory. Okay. Um, but yeah, he's he's a uh, former law enforcement guy himself. Yeah. All right, uh, 
David Geis uh, on his way out as head of the prison system um, in the hat for headliner of the week now. Colin Campbell, who's your headliner? Well, I'm going with uh, one of the uh, the more quotable uh, people in the legislature, uh, Representative Jimmy Dixon. Uh, as we're recording this, he's at a uh, House uh, Select Committee meeting on river quality that's uh, reviewing the uh, Gen X contamination issue. Uh, they're having a, sounds like it's going to be a day-long hearing on Thursday uh, to look at that issue. Uh, and he's making some statements uh basically criticizing folks who are making Gen X a political issue uh, and uh, also anybody who's uh, trying to tie it to previous cuts to environmental regulatory agents, so namely uh, the governor who's uh, wanting more funding for the Department of Environmental Quality. Uh, and uh, Dixon's statement about the governor um, is that uh, he, quote, needs a spanking and needs to be sent to timeout, according to some uh, tweets out of that meeting this morning from uh, other reporters who are there. Uh, so uh, for uh, threatening uh, corporal punishment against the governor, uh, Representative Jimmy Dixon is my pick for headliner. Wow. Okay. All right. Representative Jimmy Dixon in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, I would say that um, for giving uh, Richard Burr a run for his money in the quirkiness quotes factor, uh, I'm going to go with Senator Tom Tillis as headliner of the week. So uh, Lauren wins this week. Uh, so U.S. Senator Tom Tillis is our headliner, and everybody should join us next week uh, for uh, Domecast. Until uh, then, on behalf of Lauren Horsch, Lynn Bonner, Will Dorn, and Colin Campbell, I'm Jordan Schrader. Uh, catch us next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.